Well, after the Lord speaks to Job with his first speech, I think an appropriate summary of Job's response could be summed up in one word, which is oops. Uh, That's just about what Job says in chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. I should not have spoken. I should not have said the things that I have said. I lay my hand over my mouth. He recognizes his insignificance. He recognizes that he should not have spoken the things that he did. He's recognizing that he is not equal with God. And God has done what he has set out to do in silencing Job. Throughout this book, we've seen that Job has had many words and many speeches up to this point. He's always had an answer when somebody's spoken to him until Elihu comes to him and speaks the truth of the matter regarding God. Job does not have an answer. And now God comes in and begins his speech, and Job yet again does not have an answer. And I think it is interesting that with that first speech, what God has set before Job and for all the readers of this book is that we are unable to devise a simplistic system to explain how God runs the world. That is something that has been driven into Job in that first speech. Where were you when I made all these things? Who do you think you are that you can uh, explain what I have done in regards to my creation? What we have seen in the folly of the three friends particularly is that they thought they could boil down the characteristics and actions of God into one particular trait. And God has said, that's just not going to work for me. That's not who I am. And any kind of system of thought or theology or philosophy about God that boils God down in some kind of simple one-sentence concept is not going to work. God is far more complex than that. But what I think is particularly interesting about this is now God has silenced Job. Why does God speak again? God has laid out his case and Job gives what appears to be the appropriate response. I shouldn't have said anything. Whoops on my part. Shouldn't have said anything. I I take it back. And and you see Job do that. And the reason why I think we're going to see another speech out of God that God must continue with Job is Job has now expressed his own insignificance But there is something more that God wants Job to do and for Job to understand. And that's the basis of which this next speech then comes from God, is that we need to now get Job to understand the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And all of the speeches now that happen, all the words that happen in this final speech of God, center around that very idea about the wisdom and the power and the knowledge of God. Yes, Job recognizes his insignificance, but are you ready to exalt God in who he is? And so that's how then the Lord opens in chapter 40 and verse 6. We read there, 
Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Remember, that's what God said the first time also. Is that when it first comes to Job in chapter 38, this is what God says. Get ready. You wanted to talk to me. I have some things to say to you. Let's see if you have an answer for the things that I'm going to bring to your attention. Verse 8. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me? that you may be in the right. This is the other big problem that Job that we have seen in his speeches all throughout is that Job is very much ready to vindicate himself and his own righteousness and by doing so is willing to forego the vindication of God. He looks at himself and goes, I know I'm blameless and I'm righteous and I fear God to turn from evil. So therefore, there must be something that is wrong with what God has done. And so now God now appears to him and says, is that really what you're going to do? Are you going to put me in the wrong? I think the NIV sums it up very well in saying, would you discredit my justice? Because that's ultimately what's at stake. The the friends have said, Job, you're a sinner. That's why these things are happening. Job is saying, no, I'm not a sinner. The problem is the justice of God. And here is God now saying, are you really going to condemn me to justify yourself? Are you going to take that stance before God? And so that's what sets the opening here as now God is going to direct these questions before Job. Notice now verse 9. Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. And tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. This is God's open, basically. Who really has justice? All right, Job, you are challenging my justice. You vindicate yourself and you are putting me in the wrong so that you can be right. Let's see how that plays out. And he just begins with saying, well, Job, are you able to judge the world? Do you have that kind of power? And notice where he begins. He begins there in verse 9 with, Can your voice thunder like God's? Can you do that when you speak? Does it cause this booming like it does when God speaks? Remember we saw that as God came into the whirlwind, and we saw even Elihu when he's speaking, he says, here is the voice of God thundering away. He says when God speaks, it is loud and thunderous and causes people to fear and to flee. Job, can you do that? When you speak, is it this great power and this great strength? Verses 10 to 13, when you judge, will you be able to judge the wicked and establish righteousness and justice? Essentially what God just does in this opening paragraph is says, all right, Job, let's see you do it. Let's see you do it. Go ahead and judge. 
Go ahead and show your superiority. Go ahead and do that. Verse 13, hide them in the dust. Verse 12, look on all who are proud. Verse 11, pour out the overflowings of your anger. Let's see you just judge the world. Let's just see you bring that justice. You think you have the power to do that. And you've put God in the box and said that he is not just and that you are. Well, let's see you do it. Exalt yourself and do it. And I love how God ends that in verse 14 by saying, if you can, then I'll acknowledge your strength that you can save. Let's go ahead and see you do it. Let's see you bring that judgment. Let's see you execute your wrath. Let's see you judge the nations and judge the wicked and bring them low. Go ahead. And obviously Job can't do that. And so immediately God challenges Job who thinks that he has this all figured out and challenges him and says, really, can you have the power to do such things? That sets the table for what he's about to do is he's going to now draw on two particular creatures that exist and is going to have Job look at these two creatures. From the very beginning of our study, I have hinted at you looking at the answer here that God gives in looking at these two animals in that in this God is giving an answer. He's going to describe behemoth and Leviathan and that's going to be the end of his speech. And therefore, in this declaration about these two animals, God is giving his answer to the criticism of Job. Now, that may not be the most straightforward, but I hope that as we read this tonight, that you'll think about how is God answering Job? How is God vindicating himself and showing Job to be wrong by pointing to these two animals? Also, as we read, I will leave this into your hands. But when it comes to behemoth that we will read first, one of them, you might have a footnote there that will say the behemoth is most likely a hippopotamus and that the leviathan is most likely a crocodile. As we read, I'll let you decide and listen to those descriptions and you decide for yourself if you think that's the most logical answer to the description. Let's look at the behemoth, verse 15. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you, he eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength in his loins and the power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword for the mountains yield food for him where all the wild beasts play under the lotus plants he lies in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh for his shade the lotus trees cover him the willows of the brook surround him behold if a river is turbulent he is not frightened he is confident though jordan rushes against his mouth can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare Great beginning picture here. Behemoth is a transliteration. If you look at Hebrew, it would be behemoth. Uh, We don't know what that is. It probably could be translated into the word super beast. It's this this big monstrous idea. And just notice all the descriptions that God gives in verse 19. He says, he is the greatest of all the beasts on the earth. He has power in his legs and power in his abdomen. His tail is stiff and is strong like a cedar tree. He is so mighty 
that humans will not even approach this thing, even if they had a sword. He's described as roaming the mountains where he finds his food, and he also then can lie in the marshes. Rushing rivers don't phase him in the slightest. He opens his mouth and just basically sucks it all in. He doesn't care, and no one can take it by its eyes or nose. I mean, just a powerful beast that he, dear God, goes, I want you to look at that animal. I just want you to, to see its strength and see its might and see all that it is. Now, why does God do that for Job? What is the point of that? You know, are we at Lion Country Safari and saying, you know, hey, look at that. Isn't that really neat? Isn't that cool? Let's go on to the next one. Go back and look at how he started that in verse 15. Behold, behemoth. Which I made as I made you. What is God saying? How powerful is our God if he can make a beast that no human wants to approach but only fears? How strong is God that he says, I made something that you don't want to mess with. I created something so large, so strong, so amazing, that he says, you won't go up to it. You can't catch it. You can't put a hook in it. You can't do anything to it. And the whole point then is, what power then do humans display that would remotely rival the strength and the power of God? We have that problem. Oh, we are so smart and we are so wise and we are so strong and we are so mighty. We can do all of these grand things. And God goes, really? Let's see you do that. Look at the behemoth that you do not even want to approach. And the point that God makes is if you can't handle the creation that I made, what power do you have to run the world? What strength do you have to be able to establish righteousness? What power do you have to judge the wicked? You can't even deal with the animals that I made. How do you possibly think that you can run the world? How do you possibly think that you can stand in judgment and tell God, you're not just and just give me a chance and I would then set things in order and set things to right? Really? You can't even handle the creation that God has made, much more stand than in the very presence of God. And so that's the first point that God drives in to Job is you need to see your frailty. You need to see your weakness and you need to grasp the power and the wisdom of God. That's what leads into chapter 41 where he'll continue. We have Leviathan. Leviathan is again a transliteration. If you looked at the Hebrew, it'd be Leviathan. We don't know what this is. Either, But listen to the description that's given about this next animal, chapter 41. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? 
Will traders bargain over him? Will they trade him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay a hand on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who stands before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Stop there as he now describes Leviathan. Notice the picture. It says, now look at this other animal. You can't draw it out with a fish hook. You can't draw it out with a cord. You can't put a rope around its nose. And you cannot, uh, I should say, pierce his jaw with a hook. He is completely terrifying. He cannot be tamed. He's not going to be your pet. Uh, You can't trade him. You can't sell him. You can't buy him. He's he's just too much. There's no way that you can do it. He can't be captured with harpoons. You cannot put fishing spears through him. Lay a hand on him. You're going to lose your hand. You're going to remember that battle forevermore. Hope of capturing him, completely false. And everybody's afraid at the mere sight of him. And he is so fierce that no one even tries to stir him up. Crocodile, right? Uh, No. But notice what God's point is to that. Notice he stops midstream and talking about Leviathan. And in verse 10 he says, So who can stand before me? If you can't stand before an animal that I made... Why do you think you can even begin to stand before the Almighty God? You're afraid of that animal. You can't stand before God. Job had this idea if he could just have this moment with God that things could be set straight. And here is God going, you can't stand before me. That's not even possible. You sometimes hear people miss that idea. This idea that, you know, you would be able to stand before God and plead your case, that you'd be able to tell him and say, well, here's how things are are going. And I would just tell God this, that and whatever. And God goes, you can't do that. You have no idea of the power and the might of God. One of the things I always am fascinated by when you read these pictures where the Lord appears like in Ezekiel or pictures like in Daniel or Revelation like that that it will say something like it was the likeness of the glory of God and the person fell down as dead it doesn't say they were in the presence of God it says that they were looking at the likeness of the glory of God It's like three degrees removed. And it puts humans on the ground every time. You cannot stand before God. Here is God telling Moses, no flesh can see me and live. Do you begin to understand the immensity of God? And so God uses his own creation and says, you can't begin to explain these things in his first speech. And in the second speech is you can't begin to even handle the power of what I've made. You can't stand before Behemoth and you cannot stand before Leviathan. And then notice how he presses that in verse 11. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? What does God owe you? 
Remember, Elihu hit that drum really hard. Job, in all of your righteousness, what does God owe you? And now God comes in and makes the very same point. What do you think that God owes you? In fact, notice it in verse 11. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So what can God possibly owe to you? He owns it all. He possesses it all. And particularly to Job. And very important for us. Righteous living does not cause God to owe us anything. This is what Job has thought. All of his righteous deeds meant he shouldn't suffer the way that he's suffering. He has thrown up his hands and said, well, what is the point of being righteous? What does it profit to be righteous if this is what happens to those who are righteous? And God's response is, what do I owe you exactly? What are you going to do to come into the presence of God before which God says no one can stand before me? And you are going to say to him, Lord, here's what you owe me. Here's what I should be receiving from you. God goes, no one can put me in their debt. No one can do it. Interestingly, that's how Paul ends Romans chapter 11, which is that theology section before chapter 12 opens about now here's how you live based upon what you've learned about God. The end of Romans 11 quotes this very line, who has first given to me that I should repay him. And in that paragraph, he's saying he's consigned all to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. Who are you to stand before God and say, God has to do things a particular way, that God owes me this or that, or that what God is doing is not right, or what God is doing is not fair, or what God is doing does not make sense. He doesn't owe us anything. That is what is so important that he's now communicating to Job. And it's the point that the Apostle Paul is making in a grasping who who our God is. And so he stops in the middle of describing Leviathan just to question him and say, you can't stand before God if you can't even stand before my creation. And why would you think that God owes you anything? Now he'll continue, verse 12. God continues and says, I will not keep silent concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face around his teeth as terror? His back is made of rows of shields shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined to one another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth forth light and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn out of his mouth go flaming torches sparks of fire leap forth out of his nostrils comes forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes his breath kindles coals and a flame comes forth from his mouth in his neck abides strength and terror dances before him the folds of his flesh stick together firmly cast on him and immovable his heart is hard as a stone hard as a lower millstone when 
When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though a sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor a spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotted wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. For him, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like the threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deepest deep to be white-haired on earth there is none none there is not his like a creature without fear he sees everything that is high he is king over all the sons of pride amazing descriptions again god turns back to this leviathan beast and says i want you just to look at the strength and the might of leviathan you can't open his mouth you cannot strip off his hide. His back is like a back of shields. He sneezes forth light and his mouth breathes fire. Swords, spears, darts, javelins, completely useless before him. And when he raises up, warriors are afraid and run. And he stands up, crushes everything in front of him. Arrows don't make him run. Sling stones don't make him move. He laughs at the arrows and the javelins that come at him. His underbelly is like sharp, broken pottery pieces. He enters the water and it causes all the depths of the sea to churn up. He leaves a massive wake when he moves. Nothing is equal to him. He stands tall and looks down on all humans. God says, look at these two things I made. Besides the hippopotamus and the crocodile, the other answer that people try to say is, well, what these are are mythical beasts. They're not real. And if these beasts are not real, all of God's points are invalid. The whole argument stands on, I made that, and you can't stand before that, so how do you think you can stand before me if I made that? That's the whole point. If these things do not exist, there is no argument to be made at all. These things are two real beasts. My personal opinion, dinosaurs of some kind, something massive, something huge that people went, ah, and ran away. That's what he's saying is the whole problem is that that's what I made. You think you're going to come walking in before me? You're afraid of what I made and you turn and run. You should have the same awe and respect of the power of God. You need to understand who you are talking to. And that's really the essence of the argument that God is making as we now take a step back and try to understand. Now, what is God trying to communicate to Job? What is the takeaway after we have done all of this work in moving through this book and all the arguments between Job and the three friends have been made? What are we supposed to gain from this? And I think that's what we have to really look at. One of the things that should be extremely striking to us is that in God's answer, He does not defend His own justice, which has been challenged quite a bit in this book. We should be surprised by that. God does not talk about in these sections, hey, listen, I do this to the wicked and I do this to the righteous and notice how I uphold and bless the good and I take care of the evil. He doesn't even approach any argument in regards to justice in the slightest. What is God's argument? What is the whole point that God unloads in these two speeches? 
I am wise and I am powerful. That's his argument. Doesn't even touch justice. Not a point. The point is, I am powerful and I am all wise and all knowing. Which is to draw this conclusion. God is not wanting for us to look at the world and draw conclusions based upon principles of justice. This is where these four friends have failed. They're looking at the world and saying, this isn't right, this isn't just. This is what Job is saying. Their free friends are saying, well, we thought it wasn't just, but clearly you are a sinner, so now we think it is just. And And Job has said, no, it's not. And God's answer is not, okay, look at justice and see justice in the world. Job has accurately pointed out, you're not going to see that. What you are supposed to see in the world are the principles of God's wisdom and power. When you look at the creation, the goal is not to look at the creation and say, I see the justice of God and therefore I believe. That is not what you are going to see. What God intends for you to do is to look at the world and look at his creation and go, I see the wisdom and the power of God. That was the very point the Apostle Paul made. Romans 1, speaking about God. Why is it that no one has an excuse before God? The Apostle Paul said in Romans 1 verse 20, his invisible attributes, namely, and notice the point is not to look for justice, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. The point that even the Apostle Paul makes is the creation shows the immense power of God and the intelligence and wisdom of God. We seem to be shocked by this every time we send a satellite or a ship into space and we go, wow, look at that. And God's going, yeah, that's supposed to show you something. You're supposed to understand the immense knowledge and the immense power and the immense wisdom of God. Isn't it amazing that the earth just keeps on spinning and doesn't go colliding into the sun? And, you know, there we are. We all burned up. Everything has an order. Everything has a purpose. We call it the circle of life in Disney. We see that everything functions the way it's supposed to. It is a revealing of God's divine wisdom and a revealing of His power. This is what God wants Job to see. Job, look at my creation. Do you see my wisdom and do you see my power? And that's what God wants us to see. Is that you are supposed to look at the things that are made and stand back and be in awe of the wisdom and the power of God. You're supposed to stand back and look at that and go, clearly, there is something, someone, majestic and powerful and mighty, that these things operate in the way that they do. Things greater than us, stronger than us, mightier than us, things we can't explain. Even with our own human body, things we can't explain. Why do we have tonsils in an appendix? Not some guesses, but we still don't really understand that. There's all kinds of things that we don't understand. 
that we take guesses at in science and in nature and in the universe. And God is saying, you're supposed to recognize that there is something majestic and mighty and knowledgeable and wise and powerful in that. And this is what Job now finally recognizes. Job 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This is where Job needs to be. Job goes, I defer to your knowledge, to your wisdom, and to your power. I defer to it. Your purposes cannot be thwarted. You can do all things. I cannot. And friends, that is the response in suffering. Is a deferring to the wisdom and the power and the knowledge of God. That God always accomplishes his plans, his purposes, and his designs. He always does what is right. He always does what is in his plan. And he always accomplishes his purposes. This is where we stand on the other end of things. Where we look at a majestic, all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful God. And we defer to him and say, I know that you are all-powerful and mighty and knowledgeable and wise. And I am not. I put my hand over my mouth. I will not speak against you because you are the one who can do all things. And that's why he admits his complete ignorance. Verse 3, he quotes what God said. God had said, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That was the quoting God. That's what God had said to him. Here's Job's answer. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. God knows and I don't. There is a deferring to the wisdom and the knowledge and the power of God. Notice, please, that God does not explain anything to Job. Not one drop. God does not come in and go, now back in chapter 1, here's what happened. Satan came in and I was really proud of you because you were my servant. And I said, look at my servant Job. And Satan said, well, he only serves you because of the goodies that you give him and how you bless him. And I said, no, he doesn't do that. And so we kind of had this duel over you. And see, you proved me right. He doesn't tell him any of that. Not a bit. Not a word. What does God tell Job? Who do you think you are to question me? That's what he tells Job. You defer to God's power and wisdom and knowledge and might. That's all that God tells Job. That is your responsibility to do that. And notice Job accepts that. Verse 5. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. And I do not believe at all that what Job is saying, you know, I'd heard about God, but now that I see you in the whirlwind, now I understand. That's not the idea. No, I knew about you, but now I really understand and know about you. You have put me in my proper place where now I have a proper perspective of God. 
Now I see my insignificance. Now I see that I am nothing before you. And I extol and I exalt the mighty greatness of God. And so he says, now I see. This would be very much akin to the Apostle Paul saying, seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. Now I get it. Now the light bulb has turned on. And now I understand. And notice Job's response, verse 6. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now I see her power. I understand your might. And I understand that your purposes are not thwarted and you are an all-wise, all-knowing God. And I repent in sackcloth and ashes and I defer to your understanding and your wisdom and your judgment. That's what's supposed to happen in suffering is that we see God in that light. That when we are hurting and when we are suffering, that we are in tragedy and that we are in loss, that we are able to defer to the wisdom and the power and the knowledge of God. He is accomplishing his plans and purposes. All things are under his sovereignty. There is not something that he does not see. There is not something that he is not that he is just oh we didn't know. God knows, God sees. That was his first speech to Job. Is there something that God does not rule over? No, He rules over everything. He even rules over evil. He even rules over suffering. And so the point is to bring ourselves low and exalt God. As I wrap up this section, then I just want to zero in on then one other thought about that. And I know you understand that this study is not theoretical to me in the slightest in talking about suffering and and grasping what God is describing about how he runs the world and the purposes behind suffering and difficulty and distress and pain. But one is we are able to relate to Job in every way in this. No, we can't relate to Job in the immensity of his suffering, but we can relate in how God deals with him because the things that Job desires to have that doesn't come to him are the same things that we often desire that do not come to us. The message that God is giving to Job is you need to trust me. It is interesting how we define faith in God sometimes. We take faith in God sometimes and define it as, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead and I believe there is a heaven that I'm going to one day. But don't define faith as meaning, I don't have to have all the answers. I'm just trusting in the wisdom and the power and the knowledge of God about what's going on in this world and in my life. Friends, that's the essence of faith. It's far easier to believe in theoretical concepts about, yep, there's going to be a heaven and we were baptized and our sins were washed away and we're all going to heaven, therefore we have faith. But will you have faith when all that's left in your life is believing that God is with you 
and you're going to walk with him faithfully and defer to his wisdom and his knowledge and his purposes. God is not going to give us answers. That is often the first thing that we want. I want an answer to why this is happening. Job doesn't get it. And we will not receive it either. But I want to underscore something here. Faith means I don't have to know that. Faith means I don't have to know that. All I have to know is the wisdom and the power and the knowledge of God. I liken it to our own human relationships. Parents expect their children to trust them even when they do not give the answers to the children. I expect that from my children. I'm not going to give you all the ins and outs and the up and downs and to give you every little detail about everything about why we're doing what we're doing. We do not sit down with our children and go, now here's our financial bank account and here, here sit down with us and let's reconcile the checkbook and let me show you this and here's the house payment and here's all we do. You're just supposed to trust us. And you have to trust us when this month we can go have fun and next month we can't have fun. And you're supposed to trust us when uh, we say don't do this and do these things. And you're not supposed to me have to explain. Now let me give you a big 12 part essay of why we're doing that. You're just supposed to trust in my wisdom as I am your parent. That's what trust looks like. If what I need from God is an answer about everything in my life before I take a step, I do not have faith. As simple as that. You are demanding that God give you an answer for what is happening to you or what you're going through. Rather than deferring that you can trust God in suffering. The title of the lesson is God is the Answer. And the reason why is because of this. What God has told Job is you don't need answers. You just need to trust me. You just need to trust me. We must be impressed. when we read of the people of faith in the scriptures who for the cause of their faith in God as we read about in the Hebrew scriptures and their faith in Jesus Christ in the New Testament they gave their lives and they died and you do not see them say you better explain this to me before I forfeit my life. Before I go into the lion's den, Lord, please explain why this is happening. Before I go into the fiery furnace, please explain why this is happening. Joseph, as I'm being sold into slavery, please explain all this before I will have faith in you. To the apostles who are slain, well, I need an explanation from God. They don't. Why? Because they're trusting in God. I have submitted to you in Acts one of the greatest conundrums that always strikes me is why is it 
in one chapter, you have one apostle killed and one apostle miraculously delivered. Please explain. Good luck. Why is James allowed to die and why is Peter rescued? I have no idea. What do both of those men do? They defer to the wisdom and the power and the knowledge of God. Friends, I beg of us that we would do that in our suffering. God is greater than us. He is wiser than us. He is more powerful than us. And He is mightier than us. And He cares. And He watches over us. And He is not uninvolved. Defer to the purposes and the plans of God. Lord willing, next week we'll then wrap the end of this book as there will now be the narrative section again. The final decrees about suffering and how God runs the world. I pray that we would always keep our eyes on the wisdom and the power of God. Do not be dissuaded or cause your faith to shake him because of what we seem to see of injustices in this life, that things do not go right. That's not where our eyes ought to be. But God has promised that he will right those wrongs and he will deal with those things in the end. Rather look at the wisdom of God. Look at the might of God. Look at all that he has done. And let that be your faith and let that be your hope in times of difficulty and in times of pain and sorrow. If you're ready to come to Jesus this very night, turn away from your sins and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. We encourage you to come to a loving God who cares for you and to follow him with all your heart. Won't you come and do that now while we stand and while we sing?